You're listening to the British Baseball Podcast. Hello baseball family, Matthew here again with another episode of the British Baseball Podcast and joining me today is a guest who played from 1993 starting off with the London Warriors all the way up until 2012. His sometimes volatile on-field temperament and undisputed status as being amongst one of the finest competitors of his generation made him one of British Baseball's most compelling players to watch. Over his 10 seasons career in sanctioned competition, he hit 0.383 with a 0.585 slugging average and and compiled a 0.750 winning percentage on the mound, going 33-11 and with 22 complete games, with a 2.83 ERA, second best in British baseball history behind Simon Paul. These stats were compiled with many different ruthless performances, perhaps none more so than a complete game against the Bracknell Blazers in 2004, in which he registered 18 strikeouts, which is a modern-day record. And in 2009, at the age of 41, he was named the National Baseball League's most valuable pitcher and most valuable two-way player, having scooped a fielding award the previous season at third base. He was inducted into the GB Hall of Fame in 2014. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week is Mr. Cody Kane. Cody, how's things? Hi, Matt. Uh, things are great. Thanks for inviting me to join you on the podcast. And so we have a, a, a little difference in in, uh, in our day. I've got a nice, bright, sunny day. And, well, it's now autumn in England. Yeah, you can tell straight away. It literally goes from uh, being bright about this time to just being pitched black with, uh, with yeah. no advance warning. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, I, it's getting darker quicker and quicker, this part of the world. I, I don't miss the dark, gloomy days. I will say that. Um, but you know, ironically, I'm playing in, in living in uh, in Arizona and still playing ball here. And we had four rainouts this year, <laughs> so <laughs> living in the desert, and we had four rainouts and six games affected by rain. So there you go. It doesn't matter where you are; Mother Nature follows you. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, how has your week been so far? Everything going okay? Busy. You know, life is busy. You know, I've, I've got, you know, new, new role and responsibilities here in the U.S. and the organic waste processing uh, uh, area, and it's really growing like crazy. Um, and so it's, it's an exciting time, you know, to be, to be working in a, in a growing uh, space. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, but uh, I'd like to know a bit more about you, but uh, we're again to, to here to talk about baseball. And I think uh, the listeners would kick my buns if we talked about uh, recycling for five yes, exactly. minutes. <laughs> so, um, Cody, for, for those that, that don't have the pleasure of knowing you for, for as long as, as they have, uh, aka me, uh, why don't you tell us off about um, a bit about yourself, uh, your family background, and how you got in, interested in baseball? Well, it started when I was eight years old playing wiffle ball in the backyard with my dad. And, you know, he introduced me to the game. And, you know, when I he realized I had some skills, obviously, because I was hitting balls, you know, over the fence in the back. And I took great joy in running around the bases multiple times um, as he, my dad went to fetch the, the, the wiffle ball I'd hit over the fence. Um, it was only later I learned you're only allowed to run around once. <laughs> <laughs> but he took me down to a local Little League and, you know, I pulled out the, the only glove I had, which was a, 
one I'd borrowed from the neighbor, a 1950s glove. It's too bad I don't still have that. I think I got mm-hmm. lost somewhere in, in one of the many moves I've had in my life, but it was an old time glove. And, and that was my first glove, a 1950s, you know, old timers glove. Um, and I joined a team, um, you know, at 10, I was league age nine at the time, I guess. Um, and I, you know, played my first season of little league and, and that was all it took really. Um, the next year I became a pitcher and, uh, was, I was in the minor leagues, um, as an age 10 year old, because I'd only played one year of baseball up to that point. And, um, I made the all-star game as a 10 year old. And then the next year I went up to majors and then I, you know, became an all-star in, in little league and represented my area, um, on the little league all-star team. We weren't very good. We lost our first game and we were out right away, but it was a good experience. I got to see what it was like to play against other kids that were better. Um, you know, just limited pool that we drew from, uh, and I, I wanted better competition. I just kept playing, you know, I went to, uh, Babe Ruth shortly thereafter, which is the big jump to a bigger field. And, and that was hard, you know, cause I hadn't grown much. So I was probably about five for five and playing on a big field and I had no power. Um, so, you know, I had to learn how to play all assets of the game. You know, I had to learn how to field and run the bases, learn how to take, you know, leads off the base. All that was new. Uh, ironically, when I came coaching, um, to California, I moved to California in 2019 and started coaching a, a local travel ball team. And these kids were playing full baseball rules with leadoffs and pickoffs and everything from the age of nine so it was quite remarkable to see these like miniature baseball players running around playing the game as it is played on a big diamond it was it was quite interesting to see because that hasn't been my experience and that wasn't experience in england so we don't really teach the full baseball rules um in england we just teach the basics of little league and there's definitely an advantage to that. I mean, these kids, they were exceptionally talented, you know, not necessarily very big bunch of um, Latino kids and they were small, but you know, they had the fundamental skills. And, you know, my dad told me that he, he thinks it was to my advantage that I grew late in life because I got to develop my coordination before I started growing. Uh, Cause some of the kids that I knew grew like six inches over a, a summer. So they lost all coordination and couldn't really play the sports anymore because they yeah. tripped over their own feet. But I didn't have that you know, experience. And I slowly grew into the height I am now, which is six one, but I was convinced forever. I wasn't going to grow, you know, and I was going to be small. And I, I don't think my parents will admit it. I think even think my sister was two years younger than me, got taller than me at one point. Um, and so, yeah, I just really thought it was never going to happen. So, you know, when I did start to grow into my body, it started to help. And that was in, in high school where I started to get to my full height and I started to throw hard. Uh, I'd gone to a baseball camp every year um, from Christmas to New Year's when I was in high school. So from freshman year through senior year, and it ended up, I got recruited to go play college ball there at Lewis and Clark College. But I learned so much at these baseball camps and, and I, you know, I ran baseball camps in England as well because I really it can't be stated the uh, overstated the value of getting that external coaching and getting the insights um, of those who've played at a level that, uh, um, that as a player, I'd never played before. I got to see what was possible. I got to see what a good quality baseball player looked like, you know, and they would have pro players drop in Harold Ed, Harold Reynolds, who is now a commentator for ESPN. He was a, a coach there. Um, one of my contemporaries, Kent Bottenfield, who ended up playing 10 years in the big leagues, 
um, you know, as a journeyman, won 18 games for St. Louis one year. He was, you know, at my age, he got drafted, but he was, he was tough. You know, he was a guy I never beat the entire time growing up. You know, there was always that one kid and that was this kid, Ken Bottenfield. Uh, but when I got to college, it was, uh, you know, it was a very different experience. Again, you, you step up that next level and, you know, you've got the best of the best are now in college if they haven't been drafted, at, you know, by this point, but you've still got, you know, the, the best baseball players. So I had to, you know, again, kind of identify what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, and, you know, and I realized that, you know, I wasn't throwing the ball 90 plus miles an hour, so I got to be accurate. I've got to hit my locations. And, and, you know, I got to learn different pitches. Uh, you know, they taught me a changeup. Like I never wanted to throw a changeup when I was younger because I was sure that it just made it easy for the, uh, the other player to hit it. But when I started to realize the value of throwing a changeup, it's now my favorite pitch to throw as a pitcher because I I throw hard enough where I can get guys, you know, just chasing, you know, slow pitches. So I I found value in in these camps and the, in the tuition that I was getting all through, you know, stepping outside of what was my just local team, right? Because that, you know, it's hard to get coaching from your local, you know, manager because, you know, they got a whole team they got to worry about. You got to make sure their people are on time, the field's ready, you know, you got the plan for practice and you, you know what your lineup's going to be. It's, it's a lot of work. You don't have time to spend individually with each player. So it's, it's really valuable and I can't recommend that enough. There's some opportunities in England. Um, you know, the, the camp that I used to run, you know, sadly is not happening now, but you know, it was an opportunity to expose, you know, players new or more experienced to new ways of looking at playing the game, you know, and we all need that. We need a new refreshing view on, on, how to improve our own abilities, whether that's in baseball or whether that's in the rest of life. That's interesting. Uh, so um, you mentioned there about, I uh, just want to touch one or two things with you, about you um, developing a new pitch and, and you never really thought you were going to change a pitch, uh, throw a pitch, ah, throw a change up. Well, uh, what tips then have you got for any of the young listeners that might be listening that, that are interested in pitching or that are pitchers? Well, I would say if you want to be a pitcher, then you got to throw at things. You know, when I was growing up, I threw, I'm not recommending this necessarily, but, you know, I threw snowballs, you know, we don't get a lot of snow in England, but up in the North, you get a little bit more than they do in the South. You know, I would throw acorns. I would throw dirt clods. I would throw baseballs. I would throw, you know, pine cones. I would throw anything I could throw. I would always, you know, pick points to aim at. I would get a ball. I'd throw against the wall. I would, you know, make out a, a, a strike zone. I would throw to the strike zone. I used to throw to a, a tennis ball against the steps, um, you know, in front of my house. I used to drive my parents crazy, I'm sure, but they never complained because they knew where I was. Uh, and I would throw at the steps. I'd try and hit the corner of the step so that the ball would shoot and I'd have to go run and try and catch it. So if it didn't hit the corner, I would end up having to field a ground ball. So I, I just developed all of these kind of games around throwing anything really throwing a soft uh, throwing a tennis ball throwing a baseball um and that was really how i got good at pitching was just throwing things all the time you know and i know sometimes we get stuck here kids just like oh well i practice once a week and that's all i'm gonna do i'm just gonna throw once a week well i guarantee you if you're throwing once a week you're not gonna get better. you're gonna get marginally better but you really have to work on it you know i'm playing in a league now and you know i only throw every occasionally and whenever i do it hurts because i'm just not in throwing condition yeah so you know it's it happens you know to all pitchers you really just got to keep pitching um and i would say stick with you know especially when you're under 15 
you got to stick with just straight pitches, fastball and changeup. Um, you can start to add, you know, curveballs and, you know, other things like that. But I really don't like to even advise that for young athletes until you've got your proper throwing mechanics down, you've had some time under your belt, you know, you, you know how to take care of your arm, not, you know, cause a lot of kids end up hurting themselves because they try and throw pitches. They're, they don't know how to throw. Um, I was guilty of this. I, I taught myself to throw a curveball, And so, you know, instead of throwing like this, I started throwing like this and, you know, what does that do to the elbow? That just totally torques the elbow. Yeah. And at 14 years old, I couldn't even open a drawer with my right hand because it was so sore from throwing these little flipped curveballs up there on a big field. So I had to learn, relearn how to throw pitches so I didn't hurt myself. Uh, but I lost, you know, three months of a season because my arm was sore because I was throwing incorrectly. So a lot of that, I know Will learned, Will Lintern, shout out to Will. He's working on some throwing mechanics stuff uh, that he works with uh, cricketers and baseball players. And he's yeah. a good kind of guy to work on that because he's got exposure with both. Um, but I know in early days when I watched cricketers throw, I thought, oh, gosh, they throw awfully. But then the Australians introduced a baseball glove. And then the Australians started to learn how to throw because they could practice throwing to each other without hurting their hands. And yeah. then they got to be better throwers. And they started to adopt that in the other cricket leagues, I've noticed. So they use gloves. Ironically, they're specially designed cricket gloves. I don't know why that is, but, you know, <laughs> what's different than a baseball glove? But, of course, somebody's got to put their brand on it, right? Yeah, um, indeed. But it's a good, good shout that with, uh, with Will. I did his off-season training program. And it, I think now that there are that many opportunities for athletes to throw and not have the excuse to not like he had the uh, the ball in the sock mm. and like taping a sock to your arm so you can just throw in your house in your room you don't even need a field or back you could literally do it as long as you can extend your arm and yep. uh, yeah genius way of, of, uh, of looking at it really and there's also bands you can get bands and you know you attach those to a fence and there's a whole sequence of you know, processes you can go through to strengthen your arm, to, you know, simulate throwing against resistance so that when you do step on the mound after having had, you know, month and a half of your crappy weather, you can't get outside, at least you've been emulating the throwing motion. So when you step on the field in February or March or whenever you can actually get out on the field, then you, your arm is not just like shocked into existence yeah. again like oh god my arm's sore for weeks because i didn't do anything for the whole off season and now i'm coming out and i'm throwing too much because my arm feels great and then the next day oh god i can't move so that's the typical you know british baseball player right there uh, where the ones who want to progress and get better have got to do the off season work you know it's got to be at least once a week you know in the off season you know preferably you you've got to be doing something three times a week and even if that's just running or if it's doing some weight work or it's doing, you know, resistance work, you know, using baseball fundamental movements, then, you know, then you're missing a trick because, you know, the competition is out there doing it. If you're not doing it, somebody is doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, true. Um, one other thing that you mentioned as well, I, I don't know if you can give me insight on this, but you said that you set up um, a baseball uh, camp as well. What made you want to set up a baseball camp to start with? And what would you advise to anyone that may think, do you know what, maybe this is something that we could do with in my region on a start one up? Uh, that, that's not me, by the way. I'm, if my family and parents, like my missus is listening, 
I don't, I'm not setting up a baseball camp. Trust me, I'm not that skilled. Just <laughs> <laughs> put a caveat in there. I had to do the same caveat when we were talking about starting a baseball club and like, worried looks from the, the better half. Like, I'm not doing this. Trust me, I'm happy in Manchester. Well, I did. I there set up a couple of baseball camps um, over the years. So I went to one for eight years, the Lewis and Clark Pioneer Baseball Camp um, that I attended for four years and coached at for four years. Um, I then set up my own uh, Perfect Game Academy baseball camp that was run in Cobham at the American School there and, and ran that for five years. I also set up something for London Sports. and I put on their hat, you know, to give them a shout out. Uh, where I worked with uh, them to do a development, off-season development program. It was gym work, but it was, you know, for the eight, eight to 15-year-olds. Um, and we would get a various number of kids would turn up each week. But the idea is, you know, you get a set program that you run. We would do that, you know, once a week. You know, that's, it's the best you can do. It's the best you can do. Um, but that was something we were able to set up. Um, I'm happy to advise anybody on, on setting up camps. I've had a lot of experience with it. Um, I know what works, what doesn't work. Um, you know, I've had, I've tried things out by offering food, not offering food, uh, you know, just crazy things to try and, you know, figure out what works with the community. And, um, and it's not the same, you know, it, it's, it's not going to be the same for everybody, right? You know, if some kids can take a lot of baseball, others can't, you know, and you have the same problem. You throw something out there in January or February, all these arms are sore. They come out and throw for a couple of days and their arms are sore. Uh, so a lot of what we do in camps is we work on the fundamentals. You work on getting your mechanics right and trying to do it the right way. Because in the off season is the opportunity you have to work on the things you don't have time to do during the season. Um, you know, if you're in a slump, you know, you might have to do something to change what's going on. Um, but most of the time, it's just a matter of time. You know, you just you keep going back out there and, and trying. And in the off season, you, know, you want to get more power. You need to work on, you know, some things getting started earlier, a little more torque in the upper body. Well, then you have to make a plan for that. You want to throw harder. You know, you got to build more leg strength. You got to develop more torque, you know, upper body, you know, lower body, you know, hip separation, which creates torque. So there's a lot of things you can use a camp for um, mental discipline. You know, this is something I learned at a baseball camp. I remember we were sitting in a, in a lecture room in a, um, in a college lecture room and there was a hypnotist who came to give a talk. And, and mind you, this was in 1983. And so this kind of mental game of, of baseball wasn't really, you know, caught fire yet. And it was still kind of early, you know, sports psychology. So this guy was doing a you know, demonstration of, you know, I guess uh, hypnosis is probably the best way I could describe it. So he was had these guys and, you know, up on stage and he was power suggestion, getting them to raise their arms and do these kind of crazy things. And, you know, I kind of like didn't really know what to think of it. So I didn't really, I just sort of parked the whole thing. But at the end, they gave us a pamphlet and that pamphlet was how to do self-hypnosis. And for some reason, I just put it in the, in the bag of everything else I collected from the camp and, you know, went home and um, I didn't think much of it. And I went to my freshman year at uh, high school baseball and I started the season, made the team, started the season hitting one for 13. And, you know, me, I had thought I was for sure a professional baseball player. Um, I, this was my vision in, in my life, you know, for myself, I was going to do anything to be, you know, hit, 
be a major league baseball player. And all of a sudden I started my freshman year of high school, one for 13. I mean, I didn't, I really didn't even know what to do. I, I, I didn't have any dancers. The only thing that popped in my head was this brochure that I had got this pamphlet that I got from this self hypnosis like session. And I went and found it, dug it out and I started following it. Right. And I did exactly what it said, you know, the night before my next game, I then went out to the field and I separated myself from the rest of the team. I sat on the bleachers and I went through this mental you know, process um, and my friend, my buddies were making fun of me. And I said, like, I don't care man. This is, this is life or death for me. This is like, I'm going to be figuring this out or I'm, I'm not going to be playing ball anymore. Yeah. And in that game was arguably the best game I ever played in my life. Um, ended up going six for eight with 10 RBIs. I pitched the game and we ended up winning 33 to three. So nice. like I went from having the worst season to having one of the best games that I ever played in my life to date. And that just like woke me up. Honestly, that woke me up to such an extent that I said, okay, well, every single game, I'm going to be doing this. And then I got to the point where, okay, well, rather than just every single game, what else can I use this for? Well, I can use this for my schoolwork. I can set a goal. I can work towards a goal. I can visualize myself being successful in a, in taking a test environment. And I thought, okay, I'll try that. And so I started to do that in high school. And I'd started a little bit slow in high school, not, you know, not great grades. And by the time I finished, I was a straight A student because I basically applied the same principles that I used in baseball um, and the visualization techniques and the predicting my own future techniques um, that I learned in baseball, I applied them in other parts of my life. And the results have been miraculous. I mean, I can say nothing less than that. You know, the and there's lots of studies out. There's lots of there's lots of anecdotal um, support for visualization um, affirmations. There's also a lot of clinical and scientific research behind this. The CIA has recently declassified a lot of information where they talk about how you can use the mind to control your state and how all the testing that they've done for lots of years um, on controlling the human brain to get it focused. So, you know, there's a lot of examples of that in, in our modern society today, really, about how utilizing the mind and visualizing yourself being successful is really what it is all about. If you do not incorporate that as an athlete, you will not reach the highest levels. That is just a fact because all the most successful athletes utilize positive visualization. That's amazing. Wow. Just think what would happen if you'd just been that pamphlet without even like, when I'm sliding doors. Can you remember what was on it? And let me get a pen and paper. Well, actually, you know what? I wrote a book it. called The ah. Outstanding Youth Coach. Um, and it is available on Amazon. I'm not like selflessly plugging it, but all of the stuff that I um, have learned and I tried to translate into a document that a coach with limited experience um, in whatever sport it is could apply to the sport that their child um, or, or the sport that they're coaching. Um, the, so, you know, a lot of times as a parent, you get yourself in a situation where, you know, Hey, I wanted my son to play baseball, but he played, you know, a little bit of baseball and then said, no, no I want to play football. That's what I want to do. All my friends play football. I, and, and he was good at it. 
Okay, well, the first death for me was the death that my son was not going to be following my footsteps playing baseball. Okay, I can get over that. But now I want to talk about foot, you know, football. How do I make him the best football player? How do I help him to become the best football player? I, I didn't play football growing up. I had one game and decided it wasn't for me and went back to baseball. But you know, I know that there's the same concepts of mental discipline apply for any sport, you know, whether it's an individual sport like tennis or swimming, or whether it's a team sport like, you know, football or baseball or basketball or cricket. So, you know, the same fundamentals apply. And what I try to try to do is incorporate all of that into assisting coaches to help those players that a have, you know, challenges and those players who are skilled and they're pushing the envelope. What do you do with those players? What do you do with the player that's better than everybody else? You know, if you're a coach, you don't have any experience in the sport, like help, right? So what you can do as a coach is you can work on the mental side of the game. And that's as just as important, if not more important than the physical side. There was an experiment that was done. And I talk about this in the book where um, there was a, a research scientist who, who took three control groups and they had them all shoot free throws. And the first group they took aside and they said, right, you're just going to do nothing for one month. And then you're going to come back and we're going to shoot free throws again. The other group, he had to shoot free throws every single day for a month to be retested in a month. And the third group had them visually practice shooting free throws, but not actually pick up a basketball for a month. Guess what the results were of that final test? I'll, I'll say the, the group that did nothing, the group that did nothing, guess what they, they did? They performed the worst. The group that did the positive visualization improved by 25% without picking up a basketball. The group that practiced physically improved by 26%. Wow. So the increase in performance was just as impressive from the, the practicing in the mind as it was the physical practicing, because in the mind, there is no differentiation between reality and fiction. So if you can train your bot, your mind to see itself being successful over and over and over again, the body just emulates that. There's no thinking involved. And that's why you have these concepts of you're consciously incompetent. You are conscious, then you are consciously competent and then you are unconsciously competent. So the, the best in the world are unconsciously competent at whatever they do. You know, when, yeah. when Ronaldo has the ball at his feet, you know, he is, he doesn't think about what his next move is going to be. He unconsciously just, you know, reads the defense, reads the environment and is able to interpret faster than everybody else because he is so damn good at what he does. Yeah. Um, whereas a new player, you tell him, give him instructions and they're actually playing out the words you're saying out loud sometimes while they're doing the action. So they are consciously incompetent and everything takes a long time. The more you practice, the closer you get to being con unconsciously competent, right? And that's the highest level you can achieve and that you can only get there through practice. Well, if it's raining and miserable outside, you know, in Northern England, you can't get outside and practice, but you can practice in your mind. 
You can practice every day, five times a day if you want. You can see yourself hitting curveballs, sliders, fastballs. You can see yourself, you know, throwing, you know, exactly where you want to throw to, to you know, at the plate. I would visualize this before every game. I literally will close my eyes, get myself into a relaxed, meditative state, and I will visualize myself throwing pitches exactly where I want to throw them. And I see myself hitting in the same way. I'll visualize myself standing up to bat and seeing the ball come in and like the feeling of swinging and seeing the ball leave my bat, the direction it leaves, where it lands, you know, the feeling it gets that I get when I'm starting to, you know, you know, run down the bases, all this I can emulate in my mind. I don't need somebody there to practice with me. I can emulate all of that. And I can't, I really can't say that I would even be here and talking to you if had I not engaged these, these skills at the age of 14 years old. It's just, I, I wouldn't be playing baseball. That's incredible. So like, I, I, I'm definitely, definitely incumbent of, of walking incompetent. Like you can ask anyone that knows me, anyone that listens to this and then they'll tell you. Um, so where, where could I start then? Because I, I lack massively in self-confidence. Um, I'm also not the greatest of baseball players at the ripe old age of 40. Uh, I, I suffer from drop ball syndrome quite a lot. Uh, and most of that is in my, in my head because I had a head injury not too long ago. So I, and I, I worry that the ball is going to hit me in the, the head. So I've dropped so many fly balls in important games and important innings where I don't want to be letting my teammates down. So where, where can I start? What, what's the starting point for someone that wants to get involved in this visualization and, 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 um, more positive outlook, I suppose. Well, it's just, it's practice. It really is. I mean, you know, you can do the same thing before you go to practice. You can imagine yourself hitting the ball. You can see yourself hitting the ball and what that feels. You can imagine what that feels like. Cause you know what it feels like to hit a ball. You, you presumably know what it feels like to hit a ball hard for it's you. Just about. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that's what you have to go back to. You know, I, I always, when I talk to students, you know, young, young players, I try and get them to, when they do it right, I try and make them stop right then and remember exactly what they felt at the time that they did it right. To stop, really consciously internalize what that felt like. And at the time they do it, they're not thinking, they're just doing. And that's exactly where that comes from, you know, is not thinking, just letting the body do what it's supposed to do. But it's being able to recognize when that is happening. Because when you're consciously incompetent you're always trying to like fix everything you're doing all at once and it's it's hard it's because you get frustrated because you're not doing this right because you're focusing on this and you know and so we have to keep it really simple like just keep simple goals like you know maybe it's about where you're positioning yourself then maybe that could help because maybe you're not in the right place to be able to read the fly ball or you know there's there's any number of, of ways you can help yourself on the field, how to anticipate a little bit. Um, that's one thing that I noticed in Britain. There's the anticipation of baseball players is not um, that high. And that's because they have lack of experience playing. And so, you know, when you don't have the experience to, you know, let's say a, a player is stealing, but you, you know, as a fielder, you know what to look for. And so therefore you have an idea, oh, this guy might be stealing on this next pitch. But if you don't know how to anticipate that, you don't know the game well enough, then it's really hard to, you know, identify those situations and 
take an action that will potentially prevent a steal or will get the guy out on a tag or, um, you know, because a, a lot of times players are just worried about, okay, am I playing the rules right? You know, am I actually, you know, doing the right thing rules wise, let alone skill and talent and, you know, fine tuning, you know, the details of how you swing the bat or throw the ball. Sometimes it's just about going out there, making sure you understand the rules, have fun with the game. If you're having fun, you're going to want to get better. If you're not having fun, you're going to want to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. One of my biggest issues is overthinking everything. I think that's what I need to do. And just, just let myself go and just, just be, just try and play. Well, you know, to that point, and I think it's a really good point you raised there about um, overthinking is the curse of every athlete. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, a weekend warrior or whether you're a professional athlete. I mean, it, the overthinking will bring everybody down. Um, and I was just as guilty of that as anybody as a player. You, you tell me in advance, like my college coach would stop telling me in advance when I was pitching. He would just tell me on the day, Kane, you're on the map. Just throw me the ball. That was, that was so much better for me because it didn't give me a week to like overthink everything. Yeah. and get myself in that peak state and i would just listen to motivational songs and, I'd be like, and by the time i got to the game i'm like ah, ah, i'm ready to hit coach let me in let me in whereas that is not the type of like mentality that i needed as a pitcher i needed to be cool calm and collected unflappable not letting the umpire affect me not letting the opposition affect me zero in on the target. And that was really the only thing that kept me going because I'm an emotional player as many will attest to. And so for <laughs> yeah. me to keep that under wraps really required a lot of focus, a lot of energy, a lot of channeling of aggression into, you know, one pitch that's going to go there. You know, um, that was, that has been hugely beneficial for me in managing my emotions as an adult yeah. is knowing that I have that ability to channel it, you know, and, and not taking excuses, you know, for myself, like, you know, I, I have to continue to improve as a human. And, and I've proven to myself that I can channel my emotions on the baseball field. So if I can do it there, I can do it anywhere. Right. Because there's far less pressure and, and things like that. So it's good for my relationships as well. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, that's so fascinating. That, that's absolutely amazing insight. I, that, Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And just completely went off piste and that was superb. Uh, I suppose we better bring it back more towards towards you as well. Instead of all this fantastic advice. And by the way, let us know where we can get uh, copies of the book and I'll put the links in the um, in the show notes so people can Amazon. Um, on Amazon. Just Amazon. Yeah. Right, I'll put the links on Amazon in there and uh, you know Christmas just around the corner. Or well, depending on when you're listening to this, it could be birthdays, anything. Don't don't yeah, don't wait for an excuse to treat yourself, people. Um, so how did you end up playing in Britain? What was it uh, that attracted you to, to playing baseball in this country? Well, I was living in um, Taiwan at the time when I I basically got the call to well, I volunteered to open an office for a publishing company um, in England. And so I basically took the job. And then when I took the job, I just, I didn't even know they were playing baseball in England at that point. And, and I went to the American club um, where my roommate worked as a tennis pro. And I picked up the USA Today, which was my Bible for all things sports and statistics, because it was the only source of, of information I could get in yeah. Taiwan. And 
just so happened I opened it up and there was an article about British baseball and a guy named Brad Thompson um, who ran the London Warriors. And so I cut out, literally cut out the article. I still have the article to this day. And I brought it with me on my way to England. And there was no internet at that time. Um, I think it was 1993. And so I turned up in England. I, you know, looked up the name of the company that Brad worked for and got hold of him on the phone. And one thing led to another. And I was playing with the London Warriors in my first season. Um, and in fact, uh, there was a, a book written it's called Nine Aces and a Joker. And this is um, nine pitchers who have excelled in British baseball and is written by or edited by Joe Gray um, and Project Cobb. So they've done a lot of research on British baseball, accumulation of statistics. And it's a, it's a really interesting um, insight into a lot of the great historical pitchers in British baseball history. And, and I've got a chapter in here. Um, as well. And it, it's also insightful as to, uh, to my background. So if anybody is looking for this, it's all, I think it's also available on Amazon, but I'm not sure. Uh, Project Cobb probably has, yeah. has Joe, it available. Joe's actually put it up for free on, on Project Cobb. So I'll, I'll, I'll put the link to, again to that in the show notes. It's a, uh, yeah, cracking. Yeah. is is a, a good little read. Yeah, it's, it's good. There's been a lot of work, you know, um, Josh Chetwin has done a lot of research into yeah. uh, British baseball history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's another uh, Hall of Famer as well. I've played against, against Josh, who was a fierce competitor. Um, you know, so he's written a lot about baseball, actually, especially in Britain. And, you know, so there's been some stuff done, some really quality stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's Josh's book there. For anyone that uh, was looking then on YouTube, you probably got them slightly flashing my stomach because I was reaching up on the bookshelf to get, to get this one down. So I apologize. That's one way of getting the explicit tag. So that was uh, you know, more about the history of the game um, in Britain and kind of what it was like, you know, one of the old teams in, in history. So it's a, it's a snapshot in, of our past, but with also references bringing it to more current, you know, baseball playing and, and uh, records. Yeah. So there's a host of things out there as well. Yeah, the, one thing I've noticed on Cobb as well is um, there's a lot of fanzines on there. And there's Line Drive, and it always talks about um, the Warriors and the Enfield Spartans. What are your memories of those uh, those games? Oh, what a great time that was. Um, you know, when I first came and played in 1993, we ended up in the finals against the Enfield Spartans. And pitching for the Enfield Spartans was a gentleman by the name of Rob Nelson. Yeah. Now, Rob Nelson is infamous a, because he invented Big League Chew with yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob Fountain in the, the uh, Portland Mavericks um, bullpen, when, as he said it, you know, at one point they announced him starting and they said, and starting today's game, 41 days between starts, Rob Nelson. <laughs> so he was quite a comedian, you know, and that was that team. It was the in, Inglorious Bastards, I think is the name or, or something like that. It's a, it's a Netflix uh, Yeah. Baseball. Um, and it is fantastic. And, and Rob Nelson pops up in there, but and, you know, I basically get back on topic. So, you know, in the final, we ended up playing Enfield and who do I pitch against, but Rob Nelson. So my first final in Britain is against Rob Nelson and it ended up a, an epic battle that you know warriors ended up winning two to one. Um, and it was, but it was, it was fantastic because here was a guy who had literally created a life for himself to play baseball his whole life. 
So he, he created Big League Chew. He was living off royalties of its sale. And he traveled around the world playing baseball. He played in Australia. I think he was even in New Zealand at one point. He played in um, Holland. He played in England. South um, Africa. I, I, South Africa. He played all over the place. So quite an amazing character. And, and you know, ironically, not ironically, but we're still in touch. And, you know, he um, ended up moving back to Portland, Oregon. And I saw him a few years back um, at a baseball camp um, from my um, or it was a, it was a coach's camp that my yeah. ex coach at Lewis and Clark put on every year. Um, Jerry Gatto passed away recently and it was, you know, an amazing mentor for me and, um, really helped me to become the, the man that I could become, you know, you, you need those people in your life that challenge you, that, that are not your parents that call you out on your bullshit, you know, that, that make you stand up and take accountability for yourself. And, and he was, one of those people in my life and he'll be he's sadly missed but his impact carries on you know he's mentioned in my book you know he has a philosophy that is the i believe philosophy i believe in myself i believe in my teammates i believe that through hard work i will achieve success and i believe something good is going to happen so this is still with me you know 30 odd years later and every one of my teammates it's still in their lives so to make an impact on players that is still a part of them 30 years later is a true testament to the type of coach that he really was. And I couldn't make his funeral because I was in Brazil, but um, there were over a thousand people at his, uh, at his funeral, which is, that just says everything, you know, the kind of impact that a coach can make um, on their, on their players over the years. So if there's anything I aspire to is, is that kind of a, an impact on the the players that that I coach because if you can impart something just one thing that they take away with them then you know I've done I've done my job as a coach and yeah. and go back to Rob Nelson he had he just recently ended a camp that he'd been running for 25 years or something like that um, on the east coast so he's another one who was a student of the game and and that was really that my introduction to baseball in England by ended up meeting the inventor of Big League Chew and beating him in the in the final of, of my first season in England was like, oh, I'm addicted now. I, you know, I love British baseball, right? And, and that just started my my passionate involvement. And I, I did everything in baseball. I mean, I was on the you know, board of BSUK for seven years. I was the commissioner of the British Baseball Federation. Um, yeah. You know, I... I basically introduced a lot of ideas that are now in place now. Um, you know, and, and I played at the highest levels. I played at the AAA level. I've won many championships. Um, you know, it, it's been a, a really fantastic experience. You know, I got to continue playing a game that I love and, and I'm still playing the game that I love. I'm, you know, and I'm 53 years old and I'm, you know, still, I'm playing an over 50 tournament in October um, and we're the defending national champions. So, cool. you know, it's, it's, you know, and guess what? I moved to Arizona. What's the first thing that happens? I look up a baseball team. Okay. And because of my relationships, I was introduced to a team right away. Join the team. I've got instant friends, you know, and on Sunday I went, you know, um, tubing down the salt river and it's great fun. It's not much to do outside, you know, in the middle of summer here. Um, there's not a lot of water, but there is a river and, and you just rent a tube and, you know, float down the river for four hours. And so I've been doing that with some of my teammates and, 
it's been, a, you know, baseball has allowed me to meet people. It's allowed me to learn about myself. It's allowed me to learn how to win gracefully, how to lose gracefully. It's taught me a lot of things that I just use on a daily basis, you know, and friendships that I've created, whether it's on the softball field in Hong Kong, whether it's on the baseball field in England or the baseball field in America, um, they're, they're still with me. These people are still in my life, you know, and that's the, the one thing I think that's, you know, I'd like to see more of in England is I'd like to see the fraternity of baseball and softball get closer rather than the political, you know, strain that seems to always be on baseball and softball. Um, if we started thinking of it, of having our small community and, and you know, who within this community is the carpenter, the, the, you know, um, that I can turn to? Who's the plumber that plays on, you know, the team that we play against, you know, every three weeks? You know, who's the architect? Who's the lawyer? Who are the people that I see every day on the field that I can ask for help in my other, other parts of my life? How do we support each other in that way? That's what I would really love to see in the British baseball community. I would love to see a lot more love and a lot less hate, a lot, lot less I know the best way to do it and, and more of, hey, I'm open to learn and hear new ideas and work with people to produce a solution to getting yeah. the passionate players on the field and keeping them on the field. How do you think that could start them, in your opinion? This is tricky, right? I'm a long ways away, so I can stay out a little bit of hot water here. But, but uh, um, I think I think there's just some. The game has to move on, yeah. And there are some people that I think have been involved too long, and and they need to let others step in. They can still guide. The problem we find in British baseball is people do it for so long, and then they get so jaded because they do everything. Um, and then they get frustrated with everybody because, you know, they're doing all the work because there's no succession planning. There isn't like a, who's going to take over the mantle when, when, when a person leaves, like the London Warriors folded because our, our managers, uh, Alan Smith and Brad Thompson, they just, they'd done 25 years. They'd had enough. Right. You know, I can understand that. Right. I mean, everybody has enough eventually, but without a succession plan, it becomes hard to maintain a club. Now I, you know, and hats off to the London Mets. Um, as much as I, you know, competed against the Mets on the field and don't always agree with the, the way they approach the game, one thing they have done repeatedly is that transition has always been there. There's always been somebody to pick it up. So they don't. The program doesn't drop off. Now, you know, programs have a lifespan. I mean, it's just the way things are. But for the moment, you know, the Mets are the powerful squad. They're in London. They have access to the, the greatest number of, of players of all the other clubs. They should be the best team. Frankly, they should be. Um, and they have developed a good program, you know, and they're supporting the community and they're, and they're bringing the kids up through the system. And that's the way it should work, really. Um, you know, and there isn't one person over there running, right? You can't say, oh, the London Mets is... It isn't an is, it's a, a group and they have, you know, and they struggle with their own issues internally, but you know, the bottom line is they've seen success because they've been consistent and that's, that's the game of baseball. That's the game of life. Really. You remain consistent and you keep doing things. You may not get immediate rewards, but in the end, you're going to, you're going to realize the benefits of that consistent work. Oh, thank you. Cheers for that. That's uh, very insightful. Um, 
there's so much then that you, you sort of touched upon that I really want to come back to. Uh, one of them being about the coach as well. Um, what do you think makes a coach so memorable and impactful? Like, do, do you say that you, you'll never forget some of the finer teachers that you have from like school? Uh, I can remember one of them because you're like Super Mario, and I can't even remember his name now. Brad Thompson. Um, <laughs> I'll take you with it. Um, but like, what? For, for so many people to come out to his funeral like that, he must have oh, had. No, such... sorry, Jerry Gatto. Yeah, Jerry Gatto, my ex coach. Yeah. Uh, so, what? What? Two, two questions then. Uh, what makes a coach that impactful? And in your opinion, and also, uh, was was he the the coach that's had the the biggest impact on you, or, or the yeah. some others that? Yeah. Yeah, by far, by far. What? What? That's a really good question, Matt. Um, and it's a it's a hard one to to encapsulate in a single phrase, but I would say that probably from my experience as both a player and a coach, it's, it's an individual relationship. Yeah. Every, every player is different. They're going to be motivated different. They're going to have different learning styles. I talk about that in the book too. Are they a visual learner, an auditory learner? Are they a kinesthetic learner? And, you know, sometimes if a kid doesn't learn the same way that us as a coach teacher um, the way we learn, our assumption is they're not listening. Um, but the reality is they're listening in their own way. And so we have to, we have to understand how our players work as a coach. And, and if you can get in each player's head and you start to learn what motivates them, what are they scared of? You know, what are their goals? What do they want to be better at? And, you know, and as a coach, you have to tease this out of young people because they don't know how to answer these questions because they've never been given directions on how to answer that question. What does that mean? You know, um, you ask somebody, oh, well, so what's your goal? I want to lose weight. Okay, well, how much weight? Well, you know, I want to I, I want to feel better. Okay, well, how much weight will make you feel better? Well, there's no specifics in any of this, right? And so you find most goals just are empty goals because there's, there's nothing specific about it, you know, and there's nothing to connect to. And I think that coaches are a, a good coach is able to help a player, uh, first of all, figure out what they want to be better at and then work with them to create a plan that will help them get better. And that's where the coaches really make an impact, you know, whether that's an emotional um, support system whether that is a, a physical thing, whether that is a, a statistical type of thing we're looking at, you know, it could vary. It really is different for every kid. And I think that's the benefit of having the, the relationship between the coach, the parent, and the child. And one of the things I want to do in this book is keep the vernacular, the vocabulary the same. Because if you've got the same vocabulary with the coach and the child and the parent, now you're all speaking the same language because oftentimes we'll find, you know, a kid goes out and talks to his coach. He comes back with new terminology. A perfect example is the education system. You know, they're teaching all these new ways of doing math. Well, my kids were coming home with this new math homework and I'm like, well, you do it like this. They're like, no, dad, you don't do it like that anymore. I'm like, well, shit, I can't help you then because I don't know the new way to do it. <laughs> so, you know, that is, that's really about, you know, that the coaches have got to spend that time, right, with each player and the, and they have to work with the parents. You know, we have to, if there's goals that are in place, well, let's make sure everybody knows what the goals are. 
right? And I used to spend time with some of the kids that I was doing some private coaching with, and we would go through their goals. What are your goals? You know, not just on the baseball field, but also in school. What about your relationships with your parents? You know, do you have a goal there? Would you like to get, have a better relationship with them? You know, what might that look like? How, what could you do to improve that? So we started to use this goal setting technique as a way to look at the whole, you know, one's whole life and, and look at it like that. And one of the players that I work with, um, he really took this to another level. I mean, he really did. He, he, you know, he wasn't the greatest baseball player, but he definitely worked harder than anybody else, you know, on his team. It was, um, you know, a player, James Baranello, um, who was on, you know, the Cobham Cougars and, you know, as a senior, you know, he made the starting squad as a pitcher because he just worked so hard and he ended up getting into Elon to go to college, you know, and he had some learning difficulties, you know, he didn't know if he could get in there, but he made it his goal and he ended up getting in there. And we have these conversations. Well, you know, is this too big a goal? Or There's no such thing as too big a goal. There's only such thing as too small a thinking. So if you set, a, you set your, your eyes at, at the moon, well, you might not make it to the moon, but you're at least going to make it you know, higher than the tallest skyscraper. And that's pretty damn good. So it's really about you know, trying to give yourself every opportunity to succeed. And that's what a coach should do. Give a player every opportunity to succeed. And be their, and be their number one fan, right? Challenge them when it's needed to be challenged. And I can tell you right now, and I'm guilty of this as a coach, you can't coach on the field. You cannot coach in the middle of a game. It's too late. If you haven't done your coaching prior to the game, you're not going to help a kid by shouting out there as he's walking to the plate. Keep your elbow up. Watch the ball. You know, swing hard. None of that is – it's all meaningless to a kid who's walking up there just worried about getting hit by a pitch, and he's got to listen to dad or mom or grandpa or uncle or – brother shouting at him to think about all these millions of things what have you just done to that kid right now he's a mess either he's learned to tune out you know his parents which they're really good at that um, but you know it's, sometimes they don't and then they end up just looking a mess and they're upset because they let everybody down yeah. and if we're as coaches we recognize the fact we want our kids to succeed so do i expect him to succeed if i'm coaching him every single step of the way same thing happens in football right the coaches shouting from the sidelines parents shouting from the sidelines kids don't know whether to listen to the parent or listen to the coach they're running right and then running left and they lose their man and next thing you know the goal gets scored because there's too many there's too many coaches you know and the same thing happens in baseball right you're not going to teach a kid to pitch while he's on the mound in a game it's just never going to happen you got to teach them to pitch on the sidelines, in simulated games, in scrimmages. And you cannot have expectations that are too high for kids if you're throwing them out there for the first time or if they're early in their career and they're, they're going to fail. They are going to fail. And the first thing they need to know is they're going to fail and that you love them anyway and that you're going to be supportive of them. And that even if they do strike out or get thrown out or they got caught stealing, it doesn't matter. This is the game of baseball. This is how you learn. Now you know you got to get a better jump. This is the, the instant feedback you get in the game of baseball that you don't always get in life. You definitely get it in baseball, though. You walk up to bat with the wrong attitude, you sit, you're sitting down pretty quick. Yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. 
throughout code this this has been fantastic and we are running out of time and I'm, i've not even asked like three quarters of the questions that i've got written down as well and i'm not even that bothered because it's been oh. a lot of booking a part too um i'm happy to have a part two i know i get a little carried away sometimes but you know no. you found my passion that's good as an interviewer you found my passion thank you Cheers very much. So I'm doing something right, finally. For and a shout out episodes. to, to uh, Richmond as well. My yeah. old homies, if anybody sees that, I'd shout out to them. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Richmond uh, got... Um, I can't even think off the top of my head now I did it this season. I don't think they made the playoffs, sadly. No. But no. Rebuilding. Um, I've got two or three more questions be before we wrap and get to oh. listeners' questions. Um this one is, is for a series that was started by Drew Spencer, who's the GB national team coach at time yeah. recording. Uh, if you never got the chance to play baseball again, what would be your favorite memories that you would that would make you grateful to the game? Wow. Um, well, I made it to the College World Series. Um, that was pretty amazing. You know, that was a showcase event that uh, I'll never forget. That is definitely one of them. Um, winning my first title in Britain um, and having beat Rob Nelson, you know, uh, to do so was a really uh, memorable time for me. Um, times that I've spent coaching have been really memorable to me. I spent some time with a, a GB squad that went over to Poland uh, to compete in the Little League um, European Championships. Um, and that was an experience, you know, in many ways for me, um, I coached high school baseball at, at Cobham and, you know, that taught me a lot about the difference between being a player and a coach. And there is a transitionary period, you know, as a player, it's every game matters, every inning matters, every out matters. Um, and it's not that that doesn't matter as a coach, but from a coach, the perspective is a longer term vision. It's about the development of my players. It's about you know, helping them to become better at their sport at, at, as human beings and seeing that growth and development, because that'll all manifest on the field with success. If you can handle all these other things and, you know, and it's great to be able to offer that back because I learned this the hard way. I didn't have, you know, apart from one coach, this was stuff I had to learn on my own through trial and error and reading and failing and succeeding and failing and failing and lots of failing. You know, I've, I've lost lots of finals, you know, pitching. Um, I've also won lots of finals uh, and I had to teach myself how to do that. You know, and I think coaching really gives you that ability to impart knowledge and wisdom to help somebody else. And, and that, I think those are probably the, the biggest takeaways that, that I've had from baseball um, in my life, you know, the ability to play it at a high level, to enjoy it, and I still continue to enjoy it, it's my meditation. When I step on the baseball field, I don't think of anything else for the time I'm on a baseball field, whether I'm coaching or whether I'm playing. Um, and I've realized that that's, that's what I need. I need to have that, that you know, pullback so I don't have to worry about life. This is my time. So I, I would say that's my long answer to a short question. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good, Don. Um, so I'm going to flit over now to the listener questions very quickly. Um, John Baxendale has asked, do you still have your robots of doom patch? I do have it somewhere. I just pulled my stuff out of storage 
because uh, it was in storage for two years when I moved to the States. Um, and I pulled it out in February and I've been uncovering all these gems of things that I'd forgotten that I'd packed. So yes, I do have my Robots of Doom uh, sticker. I don't, I don't know where it is at the moment, but I do have it. That's really cool. Um, Edward Fannins asked, I'm interested in Cody's thoughts about moving from player to umpire. And if there's anything he would tell his younger self as a player, having been an umpire. <laughs> Eddie, thumbs up for that one. Well, as some of the umpires in British baseball will attest, um, I'm a spirited one to, uh, to be an umpire behind the plate. Blake would, would uh, attest to that. Um, you know, Darren as well, um, Gabor. I don't know if Eddie ever did any play games for me, but um, I, I think what I really did learn in becoming an umpire, and I'm a, <laughs> let me just call this out, players don't know shit about the rules. I was one of them. So when when I, and I just laugh now when I, you know, I get in these games, even in America, we got guys, you know, I'm in an over 45 league and you still got guys arguing about some of the rules and I'm laughing because I know they're wrong. And they're arguing like they're for sure right. The first thing I'm going to say is like, if you're a player and you have not been an umpire, then I would, I would make sure you don't make the assumption that you know more than the umpires because most of the time you don't. Yeah. We've had that drilled into us. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the other thing is, here's the other thing. And I learned from, I learned from my bad example. You know, I, I got frustrated with umpires. You know, I, I felt they should have been perfect. They should have made every call. They shouldn't have missed anything, you know, um, and that's not fair. It's not fair. And, you know, I've been an umpire and I've, you know, been bitched at, moaned at and had to chuck people out for complaining. And, you know, and it's not, it's not nice. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest problems in British baseball is that people, that players scare away the umpires. You know, these are players who come out there, have just picked up the game, don't know a damn thing about it and they're criticizing umpires i mean this is insanity really it's like i think you know if you really want to stamp down on this i mean expulsions from the game you know if you start in on umpires expel them from the game you know all it takes is one guy the rest will toe the line pretty quick yeah so i mean and if we don't have quality umpires we don't have a quality game the bottom line and i didn't fully appreciate that until I became an umpire um, yeah. because the game will deteriorate without quality umpires. You know, if you get somebody can't call a strike, you know, accurately, then both teams are moaning and then you get the ire gets up and everybody starts arguing. It's, it's, you know, so if you have an umpire that can keep a game moving and doesn't take crap, those are the best umpires, but you know, the umpires that don't take crap, you get ejected quickly. You know, and that's sometimes the only way it works to set the tone early. Interesting. So what would you say to yourself after, I'll use a specific example here, um, a player maybe discussing the foreigner rule versus the men with hill pirates? <laughs> yes, a spirited discussion with the powers that be. I mean, I mean that goes back to a, you know, a, a flawed rule that was uncovered you know, uh, at that time. Um, which was 1995, I believe. Um, and at that time, there was still a foreigner rule, you know, and, and, and the London Warriors had made the final and we played Memleth Hill, which was an American airbase team, which was 100% American. And, yeah. you, know, you know, I felt unfairly we were constrained by a foreigner rule when we were playing a team that was 100% foreigners. 
Um, and I think it made a difference in the end of the game, frankly, because, you know, I, I don't think we could field our best team at the times when we wanted to field it. And we all lost by one run in two games. Um, now, the way I handled that could have been done much better in fairness. Right. Um, and I did. And we did address that in the offseason. We abandoned the Florida rule and it hasn't been implemented back since. Um, and I think that's for the betterment of the game, frankly, because, you know, the British local players, they're going to want to, they're going to want to compete against the best competition. No, you're not going to get better if you're not competing against the best. So if you limit the number of the better players that are available, then you're not going to be competing against the best. And I always wanted to compete against the best, you know? So I, I imagine if you're going to get better, that's the way it works. Otherwise go play softball, have fun, drink beer, you know? Nice, nice support. Uh, David John Martin Baez has asked, I'd be interested to hear his views on the differences between UK and US players on what can we learn from each other? Yeah, this, is, uh, it, this is interesting. I've played in two leagues since I've been back. One uh, was in California, it was an over 38 league. And then in Arizona, I'm an over 45 league. I played in... Uh, uh, national tournaments, over 50 national tournaments. Um, well, let me start with the similarities. No matter what the age group, all the players are like little boys. They have to be managed. They have to be told where to be. They have to be scolded into paying their dues. They have to be scolded into being on time. You know, it's the same stuff. So, you know, we're all the same, really. You know, this side of the, the pond or the other side. Um, I think Americans know the game better than, than the Brits. Um, they know the rules better. They played it longer. It's part of society. So, you know, it's, it's to be expected, frankly. Um, but I think that one of the big differences between the two countries is if you want to earn your spot in the States, you got to work hard for it. Um, you know, you want to represent your country. You got a lot of competition for it. You know, um, you want to make the starting squad on your, your high school, your college team. There's a lot of competition for that. And you got to be bigger, stronger, and faster than everybody else because nobody really remembers who finished second. You know, and that's the philosophy in America. In England, I don't, I don't believe it's the same philosophy, frankly. I, I think, and I'm not going to say one is better than the other, but I'm saying that, um, you know, in Britain, it's, let's look at the national team, you know, you know, it always has sort of amazed me that there's, when you're talking about the local talent, there's a limited pool, right? And so if guys have made the national team before, is there incentive for me to get that much better? You know, am I really competing against, you know, that many guys coming up, you know? And I think sometimes it becomes evident on the field, the lack of preparation and the lack of strength, the lack of speed, you know, that's just, it comes with practice. It comes with programs that are, are practicing more than once a week. It's got to be, you know, multiple times a week. And I think that's really the difference It's just the, you know, you can pick up the game at, a, at an eight, as an eight year old, and you can be just as good as somebody who's from America. If you're, if you're the gene pool, you're, you're tapping into is, is the same. Um, the difference is just the opportunities to play. That really is it. You know, and there's more opportunities to play in America than there is in England. Um, and so people get better faster. And that's really the bottom line. Yeah. 
uh, Giovanni JP Quixote also asked something very similar and then said, yeah, what, what Dave said. So I didn't want to uh, not mm. not not have his question acknowledged. It was pretty similar to, to what um, David Martibaz had said too. Um, and that's pretty much it. That's that's all we've got time for. So it's tradition on the show to have the guests have the final word. So uh, Cody Kane, the floor is all yours. Anyone you want to give shout outs to or any parting advice? Well, first of all, thanks, Matt. It's been uh, my first British podcast so i'm i'm grateful for the opportunity i've probably you know droned on too long the guys are going to be trying to cut me off maybe you can edit it and make me sound better <laughs> no 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 if anything i'll be cutting um, myself out but you know a shout out to all my friends um in british baseball um i miss you guys you know there is something to playing you know the game over there that uh, doesn't exist here you know there's a camaraderie there's uh you know, it's part of the lifestyle, the fabric of people's lives. And I think that's um, it, it does exist here, but it's a little little more impersonal. And I, you know, it took me time for my team this year, this summer team to get to gel. And we started one in seven and we almost made the playoffs in the end. But, um, you know, it took us you know, building a relationship, having fun on the field. Right. And this is a bunch of guys who hadn't played together. And, you know, we got to you have to work hard all the time. Right. You know, to make that that chemistry work. You know, and if the chemistry there and you like your teammates, you're going to play for your teammates. And, uh, you know, and that's why I've had a lot of fun playing because I, I really enjoy my teammates and you know, my Richmond players over there. You know, a lot of sh- a shout out to those guys. Great program. I was really grateful to be part of that London Warriors program. Alan Smith and Brad Thompson did a great job there. Um, and then uh, a shout out to the GB national team as well, because they did a really great job. Finished the you know highest results since 2007, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, I saw some exciting games <laughs> against oh, Belgium. Well, just... you know, my, my heart was in my throat, but, uh, eventually Messer came out and threw strikes and shut it down. So I was grateful to see that. And, uh, so again, yeah. shout out to those guys and to, uh, um, you know, national team coaches, they've done a great job with that program and I'm really proud to see the results that they, they came out with. And, um, again, thanks for your time again. And I really appreciate it. And, uh, no, no, fine. Thank you. Like you, you've got the name that sounds like a superhero, Cody Kane, and you've been a superb guest. It's, it's been. Fun. And here's my new so, team. Well, not new. I'm playing on these guys in October for the national championship again in October at the NA NABA World Series. So, let's know how you get on. Yes, I will. Lovely stuff. Right, Cody Kane, thank you very much, and I'll chat to you soon. All right, thanks, Matt. All right.